James Altucher. Stephen Dubner. So happy and proud and excited to have with us in the booth today. Drum roll, please. Can you do a drum roll? Nice. Tim Ferris. Hey, Tim. Hi, gents. Tim, can we give your brief resume? Because you have a long resume. I'll try to make it extremely brief. I am a tech investor and author, best known for the four-hour work week and related four-hour titles that sound like infomercial products. But they're not. And they're the four-hour body, the four-hour chef, both excellent books. They're really good books. They're really unusual books. They, they really, are unusual. They show the workings of a really original mind. Well, thank you. And also, the four-hour body and the four-hour chef really feel like packaged works of art almost. Like, they're, it's not just a written book. You really put thought into the whole packaging and production of it. It's intended to be a visual journey. Actually, I don't know if either of you guys knew that I always wanted to be a comic book penciler. Oh. I, I planned on being a comic book penciler and illustrator, and I also grew up next door to the co-creator of the Choose Your Own Adventure book series. Oh, you're kidding. So I got to test drive books when I was a little kid, and he would put my name into books. I never got paid, but if you go back, and if you were to read all of them, you would see such and such, and then Tim Ferriss was being run down by a transformer. Oh my God, I totally did not know this about you. <laughs> Yeah, so those experiences both informed how those books, the four-hour body, wow. four-hour chef are put together. When you say Wait, penciler, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, why did they inform that? Because obviously the choose-your-own-adventure books look very different from the four-hour books. Mm -hmm. Well, in the sense that the four-hour books are very modular, mm. so you can jump around, and, and the books are written in such a way that people can forge their own path from one interest to new interest to new interest, and not necessarily in a linear way. Uh, so that's a direct result of having spent so much time reading the Choose Your Adventure book series. And then the penciler side is really to be distinguished just from the inker, for instance. The penciler is the person who originally lays down what you'd think of as the storyboards of the comic book based on the writing. And I always thought I was going to be an illustrator or penciler. Mm. Do you still draw? I try to resurrect it every year or mm. so, and my fine motor control for drawing is so much worse than it really? once was Just that I get, I get frustrated. function of age? I don't think it's a function of age. I think it's atrophy, just a physiological atrophy of that fine motor control, and I think it's also a visual observation atrophy, if that makes sense. When you illustrate, you learn to take in details of your environment visually and record them that normal people ignore because it's overwhelming. Mm. So what, what were your uh, favorite comic books? I uh, started early. I mean, I still have about 10,000 polybagged, backed comics uh, at my parents' place on Long Island. Wolverine, Punisher War Journal, Sandman, when I got a little further ahead. Neil Gaiman, oh, Dave yeah. McKean doing a lot of the artwork. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I mean, Neil Gaiman is just such a polymath in every format. It's 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 incredible. And Preacher, things got a little, as they tend to in the comic book world, dark. Uh, but those would be a few a few of the favorites. What is your feeling about that 10,000 uh, archive, 10,000 strong archive? Does, is it like a thing that's a, a touchstone for you that you are glad will always be there? Is it something that you think about as a potential, you know, investment? Should you, <laughs> something to hand sure, down? Sure, for, to, I, I think... Probably the first and the last in the sense that for a, a while I thought of it as an investment, but I'm at a point where... But Uber was better as an investment. <laughs> Uber is <laughs> a lot luckier and a lot better. <laughs> I also went through like a very bloated comic book bubble when I was growing up. I don't know if you guys, you probably don't recall, but there was a point where they were like, oh, Spider-Man episode or issue one 
will do even better because we're going to launch it at number one because it'll be a collector's edition if we do it with 10 different covers oh, and then yeah. everyone everyone bought 10 different covers and it was a very wasteful period. So I don't know what the real value would be of what I could afford as a <laughs> 12-year-old, 13-year-old. Mm. Well, and the, and the thing is then in the early 80s, because of this glut it's and because of all these different titles coming out, that whole market plummeted. Like oh, it basically it just disappeared. And the exploded. value of the stories disappeared. Like yeah. that's why all the movies are still the stories from the 1960s. Totally. There's no new story from the 1980s. Yeah, there are very few stories because they couldn't attract the talent. And uh, but I would say that I would love to hand these down to my own kids someday. Mm. Well, you know, that was a beautifully unintentional segue to the question of the day I actually had for us today. Perfect. And I, I, I brought this question uh, in part because I just liked it. I thought it was a good question. It comes from a listener whose name is uh, Jared Weaver, um, who wrote to us at QOD. Um, he's at J Weaver, but the second E is a three if you want to look him up. And I knew, Tim, that you don't have kids, but I didn't know if you wanted to have kids. So I was wondering about that. James and I both have kids. We talk about our kids a fair amount, but we both have two teenagers, I guess, right, James? Yes, I think actually. so, as far as I know. Sounds weird, but... So, uh, considering that when we met, I don't know... We didn't have two teenagers. Yeah, they were babies. <laughs> they were babies. That's <laughs> what happens. Scary. So, Tim, if you ever do have children, don't feed them because they grow don't up. Don't feed them. No, but, here, but it's here's... It's very a, sad when they become teenagers. Oh, know that. I'm, I'm, oh, yeah, you're doing a podcast now with your teenagers. So I'm, I'm it's liking not the teenagers. It's different. It is like the world's greatest science experiment, parenthood. It's really, it's really amazing in many directions. But here's a question from Jared, which I felt was very heartfelt, and I, I'd love to contribute what we can. He says, my first child is due any day. In fact, by the time this airs, that child may be born. What's the one piece of advice, Jared Weaver says, you wish you had before you became parents? So I'd love for the three of us, two with teenagers, one with no kids, but you indicated that you want to have a kid if only to pass on the goddamn comic book collection. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's hear from you first, Tim, since you don't have kids. Oh, what's man, the, the one piece of advice you... Oh, that's a, but I'm curious to know, because yeah, what, what you'll get the perspective of someone who is thinking about someday maybe having kids but doesn't have it. So like, sure. what do you fear? What are you excited about? What do you think is true, et cetera? And then we'll tell you the reality. Well, I was having a conversation about parenting with a close friend of mine recently, uh, Josh Waitskin, who is the basis sure. for Searching for Bobby Fisher. Really thoughtful, intelligent, present guy. And his relationship with his son, who's I think four right now, is just incredible. It's it's really phenomenal. I think the takeaways that I have from Josh are not necessarily a particular book or a particular type of attachment parenting, let's say, although he might lean in that direction. It's Number one, being very, very present with your kids and so not taking them for a walk in the stroller while you're on the phone, while walking the dog, not multitasking that way, being very, very present. and Not just for physical safety purposes. That's correct. And then listening to them and observing them to determine what they need. Mm -hmm. And he, he really feels like his son regularly shows him or tells him what he needs if you're paying attention. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are the first two things that come to mind, but it might just be the uh, recency effect since I just met, just met with Josh. James, you, as someone who does have a couple kids who are in their teens now, what's the one piece of advice you wish you had before you became a parent? I think this is this is re related to having kids, but you when you have a kid, and I've mentioned this before, it's like you suddenly have this brand new stranger move into your house. And so I'm not going to go into the whole thing that I feel about that, but... 
your your wife and you or your spouse and you need to really make sure your relationship's going to change. It's fundamentally going to change because you have this roommate now for the next 18 years and it's you can't get rid and of it. And you them. think it's easy to overlook that in the kind of hubbub and excitement and flushedness of well, because you never had a kid before, you don't realize that your relationship is about right, to change. Right, but everybody who's about to have a kid knows that this kid is going to be useless I, and yeah, well, they that know you're going to have to... But they think they can... They think that the relationship, okay, will will ride through that. I think you have to right. put a lot of focus on the fact that your relationship just massively changed gotcha. with your wife. And that needs to be just as much a focus as kind of how you're going to be a better parent. The parenting stuff's going to happen no matter what, but your you and your spouse might not happen no matter what, depending on how you focus on your relationship. I think that's really good advice for Jared. We'll finally finish answering a question, but right after this. Everybody knows that good things come in sets of three, right? What does that have to do with anything? Check this out. March is the third month of the year. It also happens to be our friends over at Harry's three-year anniversary as a business. And if you're new to Harry's, we've got a special deal for you to try three of their expertly crafted five-blade German razors, a handle, and shave cream for just $10 with the offer code QUESTION. Harry's razors will give you the best shave you've had in a long time. Harry's blades are super sharp and provide a close, comfortable shave. Question of the day, producer Nathan was one of those people overpaying for razors, even tried buying in bulk at the big box stores. Now he uses Harry's razors, and he looks much more professional. Well, he looks somewhat more professional when he's trying to boss us around in the recording booth. Harry's is the only shaving company that has both amazing quality and low prices. Their razors are German-engineered, five-blade cartridges manufactured in a factory they own, which has been manufacturing this product for nine decades. Their quality is guaranteed, and Harry's will provide a full refund if you're not happy. Why pay $32 for an eight-pack of blades when you can get them for half the price at harrys.com? The Harry's Starter Set is an amazing deal. For just $15, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. Harry's doesn't like to discount because their prices are already really low, but we've worked out a special offer for you guys. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with promo code QUESTION. Stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com, enter code QUESTION at checkout. That's harrys.com. Go there right now, enter the code QUESTION at checkout. Thanks. I would say if there's one thing that I wish I had known if somebody had told me to worry less, mm. like all the time about everything, not just the physical, you know, like every rash, it's like, oh, it's Ebola. And every <laughs> headache is brain tumor, you know? And I wasn't that bad and my wife wasn't that bad, but cumulatively, you're over, you know, and and you look back at it and babies are just a lot hardier than we think. I mean, you know, uh, and I just think a lot of modern parents drive themselves and other people crazy by acting otherwise. I mean, you think the species would have gotten to 7 billion if we were, you know, as frail as every new parent seems to think about it? <laughs> well, I like the Louis C.K. approaches, which is like, maybe if there's peanut allergies, just shut your eyes for about a year, and then nobody <laughs> will have peanut allergies any, ever again. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, I have one more thought for this reader, which was something I picked up in a book, terrible title, fantastic read, called Don't Shoot the Dog. 
the best book on. Now, why is that a bad title? Because you have a dog, and it hurts. no, because it implies. It, well, it implies all sorts of odd things, but it also makes it sound like a book specifically for dog training. And it's actually a book about behavioral modification written by someone who's trained marine mammals. And uh, that's that's interesting for a couple of reasons. But it relates to the anecdote probably 20 pages in from another trainer who is quoted as saying, no one should be allowed to have a kid until they're until they've trained a chicken. And the reason being <laughs> that chickens have tiny little brains uh-huh. And they only respond to positive reinforcement. Ah, you can't punish them. You can't yell at them. It just does not work. And you have to be really precise. I with didn't your know feedback. that about chickens. Yeah, you have to be very precise with your feedback and using a clicker and markers for things, i.e., behaviors that you want. Now, what can you train a chicken to do? You could train it to turn like clockwise or counterclockwise a certain number of times before it's uh-huh. fed. You could do, try and it's kind of like a like a Zumba or not a what are they Roombas? Yeah, Roomba. Yeah. <laughs> maybe go a few you steps could, in one direction well, and then take a ninety degree turn. You could probably train them to do Zumba also if you can train them to be That's a Roomba. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And uh, I think there is a lot to be learned from getting a basic understanding in the sense of clinical, but of like operant and classical conditioning. Mm-hmm. And in training, my I have a puppy, and I've really uh, no big surprise, just become obsessive about training. I think it all translates uh, well, across let, species. Let me ask you this. So I love, I think that's great advice. Um, and maybe maybe the three of us should start a chicken training business <laughs> as a kind of pre-parental stage. But that really leads me to the bigger question, which is, <laughs> if the suggestion is, you know, you got to be competent to train a chicken before you should have a kid because a kid is going to grow up to have more leverage than a chicken will ever yeah, have. Yeah, they have thumbs too. There yes. you go. So don't. what do you think about the notion of parental licensing? I mean, you need a license to cut hair. You need a license to keep a chicken. I don't know. Then you get into the government. I don't like, like I don't, look, I don't have a driver's license, but I will freely admit I drive all, all over the place. I don't think you should admit that so freely. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I don't care. Try to find me, but uh, <laughs> in, I don't, in the I, swerving car. I don't know if I want to give the government more permission to rule over such an important aspect of my life. Unless you think that what the government ends up doing with about eighty percent of its time is trying to clean up the messes caused by people making bad decisions about their lives, sure. including people raising. Ki- you know, if you look at the the amount of mayhem in the world, there's not that much. And the vast majority of it is caused by a relatively teeny percentage of the population. I'm not saying that all that mayhem could have been alleviated by having better families, but I think we do know, and if you look at human civilization, the strongest indicator of good outcome for an individual human is a good family support. And all of that means, and there are all kinds of families and all kinds of trouble, but a really good way to increase the chance that someone will produce mayhem is to have them in a really crappy family where parents aren't around or they don't care or they don't devote the resources to them. So if it's that important, I'm not prima facie opposed to the idea that people should have some kind of standard to have a kid. That's well, I, think it's, I, I was just going to say I think it's super tricky and it's going to get trickier because you have people who automatically flinch at that and say it sounds like eugenics right. and so on. Then you have the current and certainly forthcoming conversation about gene editing and tools like CRISPR. So (laughs) what types of people or would-be parents are qualified to make decisions about designing or optimizing their own offspring? I mean, then you get into really murky territory really quickly. I'll tell you one gene they got to cut out right away. Is anybody that's ever 
hosted a podcast should not be allowed to reproduce. <laughs> but wait, I want to. I'm going to point out to my fellow podcaster Stephen Dubner here. Chapter one of Freakonomics. You prove that violence went down not as a result of government intervention, but because in the 1970s the government gave more more choice to people about when they can reproduce. Well, it's interesting you say that because it was, I mean, it wasn't quite the government. It was Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade. But even that was, a, it's not an act of legislation the way that we properly th- but typically think But it was the government removing themselves from the picture of pro-choice. Yeah, or you could say, um, yeah, you, you, you could make that argument. But I, look, I'm, I'm on your side all day long in terms of let's not give Why? governments you. more, you know, rules and regulations and, you know, ways to interfere with the way people live lives and the way that people build societies and run economies because all of those seem to be done pretty well without big overseers. On the other hand, if it's something that's important to every one of us every day, which is the way that humans act toward other humans, I would like to think that we'd be a little... It's It's just weird to me. Like, literally, if I want to buy... A puppy. I was just going to say it's harder as someone who recently <laughs> adopted. Like it is harder to adopt a puppy on Long Island, at least the way that I went about it with like, the character and background checks and financial checks, than it is to have a child. Right. You just got to have uh, some reproductive organs and uh, and someone out there with the opposite set and boom, off you go. So wait, I have I have a much more important question related to what Tim just said about CRISPR Much more important than genitals? Yeah, well, I want to ask about DNA editing, which could be related. <laughs> Is that something that could happen when you're older? Like, what if I want to be taller right now? Can I edit? It? Well, are the tools going to be there to uh, edit DNA now? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think that it won't... The I want to have a stronger will, chin. People will... <laughs> I want to edit that pronto. I don't know is the answer. I think that you could take it even a step further into science fiction territory and ask, you know, could I use harvested stem cells of my own to clone myself, grow a second version of myself? In which four podcasts simultaneously. You could have four podcasts simultaneously. You could also have different versions of altitude. Perhaps you could borrow from right. You could Mm -hmm. have the tall one. You get two point oh with the with that might be depressing if I make a better version of myself. Here's a question, James. If you can have four of you, do you spread the positive attributes about among the four, or do you make one tall with strong chin, perfect vision? No way. They all have to be dumber and uglier than me, which is. Just really hard work, but uh, it has to happen. (laughs) Stay tuned. In mere seconds, you will hear a sneak peek of our next question of the day. But first... What is the mysterious secrets of Uncle Bertie's botanarium? Nettled spaghettarium nocturnum. The night spaghetti. Looks like spaghetti. Yes, but specifically when you eat it at night. Why none other than the biggest, boldest Howl original show yet? I've seen a crab with seven legs. Starring Jermaine Clement in a truly original fantasy adventure. Oh, what's that awful smell, Solinter? That's the sea air, sir. Experience the mysterious secrets of Uncle Bertie's botanarium today, only on Howl. On the next question of the day. How do you personally find out what you're uniquely qualified to be the best at? Because you don't know in advance. You kind of have to do something for a long period of time before you're the best at something. How do you kind of find out? And this is a big question. It's a great question. James. question we Way all better get. than you usually ask, I have to say. <laughs> uh, it's probably Tim, true. you're really raising his level. Appreciate I know. It. The bar is up. I got to press Tim Ferriss. So, yeah. How do you find out what you're going to be good at? 